Welcome to the Start a Brewery podcast, where we discuss all things relating to startups, open, and growing breweries from concept to execution. We are pleased to partner with All About Beer to bring you this podcast. You're joining us today for episode 009, Kitchens, plus the question of taproom, brew pub, or production brewery. I'm Laura Lodge, here with Candice Moon, and we're excited to welcome you to our ongoing podcast journey. As your hosts and founders of Start a Brewery, we both have extensive experience in our areas of specialty. Candice is the craft beer attorney, having worked with more than 500 brewery clients over time, and my background is a mix of distribution, event planning, and craft beer education. You can find more, brew- more information about us and our contributors, plus a whole bunch of information and resources at startabrewery.com. To begin, we appreciate today's podcast sponsor. Craft beer knows firsthand that the best ingredient is love. Arrived Point of Sale combines industry expertise, essential taproom tools, and a whole lot of love to make running your brewery easier. Scale faster with Arrived's mobile all-in-one system that offers flight tools, digital card on file, and award-winning customer support. See profit building tools in action at arrive.com forward slash start a brewery. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash start a brewery. Finally, a lovable point of sale arrived. In the most recent episode, 008, we dug into ownership and organizational structure with Mary Bretman of Beverage Business Builders, Jeff O'Brien of Chestnut Cambrone, and Jeff Mendel of Left Hand Brewing Company. I would contend that your decisions about ownership are in the top five of the most important decisions you will make for this life of your business. Episode 009 carries forward the critical decision-making into the biggest of pictures. What does my business do and what revenue centers will it have? Will I have a kitchen? Will I serve food at all? Will I have a packaging component in my business plan? If so, when? Will I have a tap room? Some of these questions can be answers now that can change later, or you can build in the option to change them or expand in certain ways. Some you'll be living with, for better or for worse, for the foreseeable future. We always work to bring together guests with differing perspectives and experience, and today is no exception. While each of our guests brings decades of experience to the table, they have lived it in very different ways in the world of beer. So let's see what they have to say. So today we have with us uh, three very uh, experienced gentlemen who have a lot of information to share with you. So uh, let's start uh, with Chris Black. Chris is a 40 year veteran of the craft beer wars. From his start working at an early beer bar to stints working for importers, distributors, and breweries, to his ultimate goal of owning one of the world's most well-known beer bars, the Falling Rock Tap House in Denver, Colorado, for 24 years. Through all these experiences, Chris has gained an expansive knowledge and time spent in all three tiers, as well as a passion for helping people set up a great experience for their customers through good design, layout, sound, lighting, seating, and most importantly, setting up your draft system. Welcome, Chris. Howdy. Uh, We have Tom Hennessy back again. Tom has opened seven breweries of his own and helped open over 130 more with his Colorado Boy Brewery Immersion Course. He is the founder, along with past partners Tom White, Greg Atkin, and Rick Post of Scalo Northern Italian Grill in Albuquerque, Pronzo in Santa Fe, and Il Vicino Wood Oven Pizza in New Mexico, Colorado, and Kansas. His video, Frankenbrew, from 1995, has become a cult classic in the brewing world. His three previous brewing books include the Brewery Operations Manual, the Affordable Brewery, and Colorado Boy SOP. 
Tom lives, brews, and writes in his mountain town in Ridgeway, Colorado with his wife, Sandy. Tom has also contributed a series of articles about brewery models to the Starter Brewery Library, and you can find them listed under Location and Brewery Design in the Plan section of our library. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. Last but not least, we have Matt Potts. Matt is the founder, CEO, and general counsel of Distill, including a brew pub and full-service restaurant concept, Still Restaurant Brewworks, a production brewery, and a regional brewery and beer hall, ah, beer hall facility with a brew house capacity of over 150,000 barrels a year. Distill's beers are distributed now in almost 40 states, plus Canada and Sweden. Distill started doing some contract brewing in 2018 and is now launching a new separate division focused on contract brewing. Matt served on the board of Illinois Craft Brewers Guild from 2010 to 2020 and chaired the Guild's Government Affairs Committee from 2017 to 2020, which was instrumental in securing many changes to Illinois laws over the years to secure production cap increases, self-distribution and beer transfer rates, and many other important rights and protections for the growth of all Illinois breweries. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Matt, I don't know if you remember the first time I met you, but I think I'm pretty sure I was at GABF and completely fangirled whoever was at your booth because I absolutely loved your sour beers at the time. So I, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I don't know what year that was, but we'll both keep that off the record. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's jump into it. Okay. Um, Chris, let's start with you. Starting with kitchens, as they're a key differentiator here, how is having a kitchen at Falling Rock, essentially the same front of the house operations as a brewery, been awesome or a pain for you? And what should people think about in terms of the daily routine required? Well, it's kind of both things. It is awesome having it because it keeps uh, butts in the seats for an extended period of time. It also is a way more responsible way of consuming alcohol. Um, the other thing is it is a royal pain in the butt. And uh, I don't think there's any other way of saying it or getting around it, but it is going to be a pain in the butt, but it is a worthwhile one uh, because it tends to make people stick around and keeps them a little bit more moderate in their consumption, uh, which is it's very important uh, component to all of this stuff. Uh, I had worked for years at some uh, retail establishments that were beer bars that did not have kitchens. And, you know, it was something always in the back of our minds when we wanted to open up Falling Rock that we did want to add that part of it because we always saw customers getting up and leaving. Uh, you know, they would come in for happy hour. They'd be there from five to maybe about five thirty or six o'clock. And then it was, boom, got to get up there and got to get out of there and they've got to get something to eat um, even on the weekends and, and during the midday, too. So it. it we saw that as a way of, you know, kind of extending our hours and making, evening them out just a little bit more. And uh, so that was very much a part of it. That being said, it's always going to be challenging. Uh, kitchen staff, uh, especially now, is more difficult to, to come across and to keep. Uh, but it's always been that way. That's always been a tough thing, finding somebody that can uh, keep their numbers in line and, uh, you know, hopefully break even on the kitchen so that you can turn a profit on the other side of the business uh, is, is uh, 
you know, that's, that's really one of the hardest things is to try to find somebody that has some experience in the kitchen who, who understands what you're trying to do on the beer side and to try to kind of make the two of them work together. I mean, we started off with mostly, you know, burgers and salads and we had a pizza oven and uh, we ended up, we, we just were having a tough time selling pizzas. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pizzas are, you know, fairly inexpensive uh, ingredient wise, and you can sell them for a reasonable amount. We just were not selling enough of them every day to make up for the, um, the cost of the gas and all the other infrastructure and the extra personnel that we needed because we had the other things. I think going back, if we'd have gone back to the beginning, we probably would have just completely uh, done one or the other. Uh, uh, I, I think just focusing on straight putting out pizza and things that came out of that oven and not trying to have also, you know, the, the fryer and the, the, the grill and the, and the, the griddle and everything like that. It just made for uh, too much in the way of labor expense and, and prep work. So we, we decided to get rid of the one side of it that was costing us most mon- uh, amount of money and taking up a lot of space. So, uh, uh, but that, that being said, it was, you know, we really enjoyed having the kitchen. It did keep people in their seats and it did keep people a little bit more moderated in their consumption, which were all things that we were looking for. Awesome. Um, Matt, from the beginning and with each evolution of Distill, uh, how has your perspective and management of food changed? Have you always provided food with your beer? Yeah, um, I agree with uh, a lot of what Chris just said. Um, it is, especially back when we started, it was almost a necessary uh, way to get uh, food in fr- or a beer in front of people. Um, I think back when we started Distill in 2007, uh, there were certainly some great breweries and great brew pubs back then, but very few that focused on pairing artisan food with artisan beers. Um, they said we viewed that as a huge niche at the time, back when uh, we had actually envisioned doing more of a uh, a group of brew pubs um, rather than focusing on production. Um, so that we thought we thought would be a niche beyond just where we're at now and normal. Um, and when I say artisan, you know, that's certainly like chef, it means different things to different people. Certainly chef driven uh, menu with ex- real executive chefs, um, you know, craft, uh, scratch food. We make everything from scratch, very, uh, very um, hardly ever even needed a freezer other than for ice cream. So we actually re- originally referred to our brew pub um, as something a little different um, to kind of help to differentiate a little bit. So um, we really refer to it as a gastro brew pub. As you know, gastro pubs uh, tend to focus more on artisan foods, but we really kind of Mushed up the words, and uh, the goal was to have elevated uh, but approachable still uh, food and beer, including food and beer pairings. And uh, the biggest thing for us, too, was not just that, but a high level of, very high level, best in town, full service, um, to really differentiate ourselves, like, locally um, from everybody else. Um, And that's that really has stayed true to this day. The interesting thing is Bloomington Normal, um, at least at that point, probably still does, has uh, one of the or had one of the largest number of restaurants per capita in the U.S. So we knew that if we were going to have a restaurant element, that it needed to be top notch, uh, needed to be a top notch restaurant. 
um, first, actually, because um, the group up thing was really unknown, you know, at that point. But we also, because uh, the other unique thing was that um, it was unheard of for a restaurant to only have its own beers, of course, because there were no brew pubs in normal. So that was, uh, we know that, you know, for that to, for that whole notion to really sink in for a while in town, we also had to pair it with great, great food and, uh, and great beer. So, um, there's a little bit of a learning curve because everybody thought they can get whatever beers when they go in there, like most restaurants, but it was just our brands at the time. Um, and still is at the restaurants, but, um, but since really since high level management and uh, service food quality were always the goals um, from four to still from the start, I can't, I don't really think that my perspective to go back to your question is really um, I don't think my perspective of that importance has ever changed. But certainly our menu has evolved. We change it um, twice a year um, on purpose to keep it fresh and innovative. And we even take off items that other uh, restaurants maybe may copy. You know, it's it kind of annoys us, but that's fine. We'll just uh, do the next uh, the next thing. Um, so yeah, we've always provided food with with beer, except uh, the one exception was our first production brewery that opened in 2013. Uh, we actually uh, it was just a production facility. Uh, we were kind of trying to build the production and packaging side of our uh, brewery before embarking on this large undertaking that is now our uh, production facility uh, up the road a little bit. Um, but, uh, and also that was in Bloomington and in normal, if you have a retail license, you actually have to have food, at least for our license type, which is interesting. And so it's, I'd like to say it's a choice. There is now a, uh, since uh, we opened, there's now a tap room model. So you can, but you're, you're limited, of course, to Chris's point, you're kind of limited on how many beers you could have, et cetera. But if you want a full service restaurant license and normally, um, or a brew pub license, which just mirrors a restaurant license, you have to have food, of course. So uh, that decision is kind of made for us in a way for what we want to do. Uh, but we we go all in on it. Even our production brewery has a, uh, a kitchen, but it is a much simpler, much smaller menu than our full service restaurant. Still very unique items, very uh, full flavored, et cetera, but it is much smaller. It is more of a tap room or we call it a beer hall just because it is so big. And um, we also have a barrel room for events and whatnot. So yes, we go all in on the food side of things, I'd say. So it definitely has a lot of challenges. Uh, so, Tons of staffing requirements, especially uh, after uh, the pandemic. Um, huge costs that you won't ever experience if you're only a pr uh, production brewery. So that's uh, that's kind of my my take on it. But uh, yeah, it's a very key uh, element of what the sill is and has become, I guess. Excellent. So Tom, in your article about brew pubs, you talk about trying to get away from the restaurant side of the business. If you had been located in an area with food trucks and or a lot of restaurants, would you have tried to outsource your food uh, or possibly leasing out the kitchen portion of your business for someone else to run? What do you see as the advantages and disadvantages of those kind of business strategies? I think that when I wrote that article, I was talking about when we opened the Colorado Boy in Ridgeway, my wife, we had been, we had opened 14 restaurants. Uh, I know we had brew pubs, but we had a lot of restaurants. And the, you'd mentioned Scalo and Pronzo both had 100 employees where we made everything from scratch. Anyway, as, as everybody was saying, uh, Chris and Matt, about the hassles, I could go on, as everybody could, for hours and tell you nightmare stories. 
and, and mayhem. But um, so when we opened uh, Colorado Boy, uh, Sandy said, let's just do beer. Let's not do food. Even though I knew in my gut that we really needed to do food. So we did open Colorado Boy just as a pub with popcorn. And, and of course, in a town of 900 people, you know, if we did $200 in sales, I was like, yay, what was really good. And so eventually I said, I've got to, I've got to do pizza. So, so we, we did go back to food. Uh, the second part of your question, though, is if I was in a big town and, you know, some of our brew pubs, I mean, we were in Colorado Springs and we were in Albuquerque and Wichita and actually St. Louis, too. Anyway, um, I still would I would not do a food truck or or contract out anything because uh you have no control over who those people are and if they're going to show up. And, you know, it's one thing to not have control over your own staff, but it's another, if, you know, you have no control over the whole operation and, you know, if somebody has a bad experience or gets food poisoning from a food truck, you're the one they're going to think of, not that food truck. So I would, I would never do that. Um, Now, of course, you know, I'm not, totally closed-minded if I was in the middle of Denver and I had this, you know, award-winning brewery and there were, you know, it was just a great place as a watering hole, you know, food truck might be okay, I guess, because so many people were, you know, there to buy my beer. Let me get to this other point, though, is that I think most people that open a brewery, they're brewers, they have a, a love of the craft, that's why they want to open a brewery for the most part. Some do it for business, but they want to brew beer and they want to sell their beer. There are so many good beers. Um, I mean, I am blown away. I'm blown away by home brewers and how good their beer is, uh, let alone professional brewers. That, you know, Falling Rock is a great example. I mean, I love Falling Rock. You know, that's that was where we hung out during the GABF when I made my way all the way over to Denver. Um, and so, you know, I, they didn't have to brew beer. They, had, they offered everything. But if I'm a brewer and I want to brew beer and I want to sell my beer, I need a package. I need, to put, I need to put on a play, basically, a production that's going to bring people in so they will drink my beer. So I don't have to package it. I can make the most money off of it and enjoy brewing beer. So I do want a restaurant element in that. Um, and it's so much more, the other guys know this, you know, in, than just having a great menu or something like that. It's more, it's also the concept. It's going to be, as I've mentioned many times, ad nauseum, you know, it's the whole, what we call oyster. It's, it's the lights, the music, it's the stage setting, the sound, it's all those things so that you're creating this little bubble of a space that somebody can only get if they go there. That's how you're going to brew beer and sell your beer um, and make the most money. So I'm, I'm a, a big proponent of uh, a kitchen. I don't, you know, I've done, um, you know, like Matt said, I've d- done food that's great food, everything from scratch. But even when we started Il Vicino, we did everything from scratch, but it was just pizza and it was fast serve back that was back in 92 uh, now they call it fast casual i think we invented it but it was you know real food high quality great atmosphere you got it fast and it wasn't expensive so i think 
that element also goes with beer. It doesn't have to be. It, it can be, you know, a gastro thing. And that's great, especially if you have a real chef. Or, you you know, if you're, you, you're just a brewer and you don't have a lot of restaurant experience or any, there's nothing wrong with an in and out burger concept with your brewery or street tacos, you know, very little equipment, very small staffing requirements. Um, but it will like, you know, like I said, it'll keep butts in the seat. So yeah. Did I answer your question or did I go off on a tangent as I usually yes. do? You answered it. I think so. Okay. I, mean, right. I, I will add just because in San Diego, um, Lots of breweries have food trucks, and we have a couple of breweries that have leased out their kitchens uh, to uh, a separate management. And it, again, it has pros and cons. And there are a lot of times when the food truck does, doesn't show up. Um, yeah. And also, like you said, if someone gets food poisoning, they're still thinking about you, not necessarily the food truck. But that said, it allows the ability to have food if, if you don't have a kitchen. And leasing on the kitchen is great if you don't have the experience or really the desire to have anything to do with food. So it's it's got its pluses and minuses, but um, you do want to be very careful who you get in business with. So if you are going to lease out that kitchen, Laura? I've seen a lot of models lately that are in a uh, collaborative space where there's several different businesses. And so the, the brewery can really just do the brewery part. And there's in, amongst the other businesses, there are, are restaurants. Um, and I think that that's an interesting model. I think that might be better than leasing out your own kitchen. Does anybody have any uh, war stories about leasing out kitchens? Is that a good thing, bad thing? I know that uh, at the beginning, uh, Russian River leased out their kitchen because they just really didn't have any experience in that end of the, the uh, business. And uh, they had a local pizza uh, guy who had about five restaurants in, in that area, in the their county and the adjacent counties and that they brought it in-house and bought him out after I think it was about four or five years. Uh, but that was also part of the plan that they had that as they gained knowledge and they, they would then take over and, and buy out that partner. I would also recommend um, that you have a sublease with that food vendor that's going to be taking over your kitchen and make sure your landlord is okay with it. Um, I recently had a client who apparently sublet without really having a contract. And it, oh. that, that's been a big problem. <laughs> so. I, I, if I could just add, I have a, a friend with a really great brewery there on the front range and who really needs to expand. And some of the spaces he has found have been too big. Um, I, I love the concept of a food court. You know, basically, if you've got that big of a space, is to have a distillery, to have uh, a brewery, to have a winery, things like that, and then to have a food common area so that people really know that the food is provided by, it's all separate. It, it's kind of like a mall food court kind of thing. I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, if, and, legally, and there are it some... would be a hassle. Right, right. Because there's there's a couple of different issues. I know that, you know, there are some of the towns have, uh, here in Colorado have done a common consumption areas that you can get past now, which that would ease that thing. But I know that uh, uh, 
ATF has has some issues with having more than one type of license in there, uh, especially if you get over two. I, I heard I know that Beershot originally they had a they have a cidery in there, and they originally had uh, mapped out a space for a distillery in that same building. And they were starting to run into all kinds of problems with with that one. And just uh, by downing it to the two, uh, they were able to actually push it through pretty easily. And, yeah. and the cidery left, but a winery took the space, and that wasn't the hassle at all. Yeah. Yeah, it also depends on your state and what your state's going to allow. Uh, yeah. And the, the I think one of the biggest uh, issues with the common consumption area that I see or that I've mentioned the clients is in California, everyone, so let's say you had a distillery, a brewery, and a cidery, all three businesses are responsible for what happens in the common consumption area. Right. So in other words, you have to trust that the distillery and the winery or cidery are being as responsible as you are and not over-serving people, serving minors, because anything that happens in that common area, all licenses will be held accountable. Again, mm -hmm. that's, that's California for sure, and I suspect that that is the liability piece is beyond licensing even. So Trim if someone gets hurt yeah. in that area, they're going to sue all the businesses. <laughs> Those <Yes>. attorneys. <laughs> I know. And you right can there with you. <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, let's move on. So Matt, if startups are going to consider a brew pub, what do you recommend is the best approach to structuring management and operations around handling the kitchen without detracting from the focus on brewing? Um, I think I've actually done a pretty good job of um, staying out of the kitchen for about 15 years. Thank goodness, because um, I'd be their worst nightmare in there. First of all, uh, I never had any background in um, restaurants, kitchens. I grew up on a farm and then I was a lawyer. And um, but as I think the consensus kind of been uh, in this conversation, you know, this discussion today that, you know, the food element is important. And I recognize that, but I also recognize that. I had uh, no ability to do it myself ever. Um, so to help with that um, and with the level of quality, we wanted always uh, from the beginning with still, we, uh, we've always had a separate management side of the company for the restaurant operations versus our brewery operations um, with very little overlap until you get up to the C-suite, if you will. Um, but even in our C-suite, if for lack of a better term, um, I pretty much kind of in my role, uh, and I was the original brewmaster up until a year and a half ago, but even as CEO, it, it's still the brewery that's kind of my uh, my uh, focus, if you will. Although I have to focus on everything, but beyond that, I mean, that's just big picture stuff, um, but beyond that from the day-to-day -day operations, and I still do a lot of um, equipment planning, expansion planning, I, that's what I love uh, versus doing Legal work, no offense, Candace, but uh, it's about 80% or 90% of what I do now is legal work, but I still love doing the other work. But it is important um, to have people managing the restaurant that have the experience, the expertise you, um, to, to handle that side. So we actually, like our COO, uh, handles more of that side of the business, uh, whereas, again, I'm more brewery side. And then we also have a director of operations that she really leads the uh, entire management team on the restaurant side. And, you know, this is where restaurants get expensive because we, you know, we have CEO, director of operations. We have two GMs, a senior executive chef, a couple other executive chefs. 
sous chefs, captains, back, you know, uh, back of house staff, front of house staff. So but all that team really um, is a separate team from what we have on the other side, which really would flow more from from me and then to our brewmaster production manager on the brewery side, uh, brewery operations manager, and then all the different departments within that, which consists of brewers and seller, uh, packaging, of course, we have packaging manager, facilities manager, et cetera. So that's really, uh, really two separate, um, um, very uh, separate sides of our business. In fact, the, the challenging thing was when we had our first production brewery, um, which our first one was just all production, all brewery staff. And then, you know, we had uh, our brew pub operations, which was, um, I was uh, really the brewmaster at the brew pub. But then when we opened the new production brewery um, in 2017, it was kind of worlds colliding kind of thing. You had uh, the entire production uh, management and, uh, um, and operators on, you know, coming together now with all the restaurant side. And we knew that was going to take some time, you know, in, uh, in terms of um, being within the same space and trying to operate within the same space, especially when uh, different spaces kind of bulge out of their areas and take over areas that, um, so there's a little bit of that, but yeah, it, uh, it's been a good model for us and it was important from day one. Cause I always, I always knew that for us to survive as a restaurant company, um, you know, aside from the brewery company, that we needed top-notch restaurant management. Um, so it all depends on how serious you're going to operate um, your restaurants. Uh, you could do um, certainly other models. You could do the food truck thing too, as has been mentioned. Uh, I was going to mention too that concept, which is kind of appealing when you have a restaurant right next door and they'll kind of help serve your uh to your patrons and your group of it's kind of interesting model and then you have a lot more stability versus like a food truck uh, which may or may not show up as has been mentioned today but a lot more consistency in the food um a lot you know and uh meeting the expectations hopefully exceeding the expectations of your of your guests so that's what's worked for us for better or worse but the good thing for me is you know, i've been able to be in the restaurant business without um uh serving food or uh, cleaning dishes uh ever so uh, I probably shouldn't admit that on the screen because um, not too many restaurant operators. It's a tough business. Um, but again, they wouldn't want me in the kitchen anyway. Uh, I'd be like a bull in a china shop. So, anyway. Gotcha. So Chris, through your many visits to brewers and breweries and sharing their trials and tribulations, what business model seems to shake out in your mind as the best? Or is there a best of both worlds kind of combo that comes to mind? Well, that's that's something that's been changing. I mean, in the past, uh, you know, having a, a more brew, uh, sorry, a more production orientation was was just fine, and uh, you know, the 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 uh, the shelf space was still expanding. That's not something that's happening anymore. It's, it's extraordinarily crowded marketplace, uh, and the the proliferation of SKUs of, you know, all the different varieties and everything like that has just made it even worse. Um, and right now the, the um, own premise, you know, the, the just taproom model seems to be the easiest for people to deal with as long as they can, you know, deal with some of the, you know, the downsides. I mean, it's a, it's a much smaller plan. It's a much smaller footprint. Um and I have a lot of friends that have opted to go that way. Um, some of them have, you know, looked at because of the 
kind of flakiness sometimes of the food truck situation, uh, have, have actually looked into uh, uh, putting adding a kitchen in because there was some space available next to them, but they couldn't come to an agreement with their landlord on um, how much space that they could take over. They, they were looking to take over a little bit of extra space and the uh, landlord wanted to take them to take over massive amounts of space. And uh, that wasn't going to work for them. They had no desire to go into full production. Um, you know, I, I've looked at a bunch of different, you know, I've been to God, hundreds and hundreds of breweries uh, over the last four decades and, um, you know, the ones that I find the most memorable, you know, do have a food component to it because it, it allows you to <clears throat> kind of spend a little time there and then, you know, have something to eat and then, you know, keep trying a bunch of their different products that they're making. And, you know, things that come to mind are things like Sierra Nevada and uh, uh, Russian River and, uh, you know, even... Uh, some of the other breweries that I've been to, I mean, down in, in uh, Houston, where I'm originally from St. Arnold's has added a very big uh, food component to their, to their uh, production brewery. And, uh, you know, uh, and I've always, you know, enjoyed that kind of situation uh, where you can spend a little bit of time there. I mean, I, I, you know, I've, I'm also well known for having some negative comments on, on some of the, uh, some of these situations too, as the, uh, uh, the brewery uh, becoming a substitute for a bar and uh, where I have some, you know, some, some uh, mixed feelings about some of those kind of things, as you might, you know, as you might uh, guess. So, <laughs> but as far as uh, breweries, you know, I'm just, you know, all the different things that I see out there. Uh, the one thing that I, I just, just drives me crazy is just the, um, the warehouse where they just kind of threw a plank up in front of a tap wall and start serving some beer. And, and, you know, like Tom has been talking about his oyster and about creating that whole environment. And I've just, you know, the lack of environment just kind of drives me a little bit crazy. Uh. Gotcha. So here we're going to take a short break for our sponsor message. We interrupt your regular programming with a word from craft beer's most trusted point of sale, Arrived. Arrived combines industry expertise and essential taproom tools to make brewery operations easier and profits bigger. In fact, Arrived customers who use QR code ordering see an increase in tab size by almost 37%. Learn how they do it at arrived.com forward slash start a brewery. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash start a brewery. Okay, Tom, do you feel there are types of brewers that would lend themselves to being more comfortable in a packaging brewery versus a, a taproom model? Yes. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I mean, ideally, I think most brewers would rather be in a packaging brewery than any other because most brewers just want to brew beer. They really only want to talk to people. They just want to brew beer. And, you know, if people are buying their beer, they're totally happy. However, my experience, having owned a packaging brewery, is, uh, you know, it can become factory-like, you know, you're, it, which is really cool. You know, the science is great. I love lab work. And I like, you know, I like all the nuts and bolts of, uh, 
of producing a beer consistently and seeing it packaged. And there's nothing better for the ego than to see your beer on a shelf, if you can get shelf space. Um, but I think, yeah, most brewers, that's what they want. However, there are those brewers that are really natural salespeople and they love people. They like to talk to people, you know, at the end of their shift, they want to go out into the bar and talk to the customers and, you know, what do you think of this beer? And, you know, and that back and forth, they're perfect for a tap room or a, 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 you know, a brew pub. However, of course, a packaging brewery should have a tap room element to it anyway, if they want to make some money. Uh, but um, yeah, I would say that most, most brewers in my experience really want to be left alone and just brew their beer, not be involved in anything else. Gotcha. I, I found that musicians are very similar. Which is, <laughs> yes. I've always equated musicians and brewers quite a bit. That they just want to do their thing. They don't necessarily want to talk about it. The, the, right. the session music, the session musician, the really exactly. good ones. So Matt, what have you found to be the benefits and drawbacks of your packaging brewery? Um, it's certainly the, uh, in terms of benefits, I guess, um, certainly the side of it that has uh, limitless potential depending on how it's managed, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, and a lot of that um, growth could come, you know, from a single location instead of trying to open, you know, 20 different brew pub locations, um, which raises its own challenges as we've kind of discussed here. Uh, I'm getting a little too old for that. Uh, although I'd hate for our uh, restaurant concept to only serve, you know, survive and normal, but we'll we'll see. Um, but what I do know that you know, our focus um, really over the last few years has been to really grow and um, make the uh, the use of our facility uh, more efficient uh, through growth, et cetera. That's the priority right now, and I think um, it's really it really has helped to. Uh, and not that there's not a ton of challenges, but it does help to grow the brand, obviously, and brand awareness, especially with our distribution footprint. We're in almost 40 states. So, I mean, that, uh, which is kind of un unheard of, but, you know, not for the macro craft breweries, but certainly for breweries of our size. But there's reasons for that. A lot of that's because we started out as a sour, you know, mostly known for sour beers. And in any given uh, state or market, sour beers are going to have a very low market share. So, we it required us to go against common knowledge, which is go deep, but not wide. You know, why would you want to spread yourself out because of all the costs that you have? Well, when you're doing sour beers, you don't have much choice. Um, but we kind of, we really created a niche for ourselves back in uh, probably 2014. Uh, we were one of the first two or three breweries to put sour beer in a can, uh, the wild sour series. Before that, sour beers had to be in a cork and cage bottle for 20 to $25 a bottle. Believe me, we made those too. <laughs> um, but while those were barrel aging in our first production brewery, uh, which, which was going to take, you know, 12 to 24 months, uh, we ended up coming up with a wild sour series to really buy ourselves some time so that Candace, who was an annoying person in our line all the time, could get her sour beers. So we uh, ended up doing the wild sour series, but to d differentiate them, um, we're like, why not put these in a can? So we did the unconventional uh, thing and put um, uh, sour beer in a can, wild sour series for uh, $9.99 a four pack, which uh, some people in the sour world weren't uh, too excited uh, by us doing that. And uh, But, you know, we, again, did barely sours and even our culture for the wild sour series was uh, our own culture. So, it, um, you know, we tried to stay true to our sour brand. But that's really what allowed our brand to grow so much. But to do that really took this uh, wide but not uh, deep approach. Um, 
so um the good thing i think with that is that uh and now that we're packaging and 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 growing deeper in in those uh markets um it's certainly um given us a diversity of revenue sources uh, you know as a production brewery um uh, not just from the food side not just from the tap room but also um revenues uh from distribution and not just in our local area or region even but in multiple states that have different seasonalities um different preferences for beer styles etc so uh certainly um those are some of the benefits uh been huge for us um the biggest thing i think uh, since the wild sours for the sour series for us was the deadhead series which now we get to play in the higher volume i you know ipa market um and normally a you know hazy ipa wouldn't have that wide of a distribution footprint unless it was you know again a macro craft hazy but we're able to you know now sell a hazy ipa in nearly 40 uh, markets which is pretty exciting in terms of drawbacks uh like anything um being just operating your own business is uh, expensive in and of itself. Maybe that's the drawback, but it is very capital intensive, especially uh, even more so now with inflation, the cost of stainless steel, freight, et cetera. Uh, there's so many challenges now, um, staffing challenges, very capital uh, intensive business startup um, and a very slow rise uh, to profitability, uh, very low margins once you start distributing because you're sharing that margin. Uh, if you're assuming you're using a three-tier model versus self-distributing, um, you know, material costs have gone through the roof, but, um, and now there's a ton of competition out there. Um, so there's a lot of reasons not to do it unless you can maybe do so more locally, but to get into distribution right now, uh, I do feel like, uh, the still just kind of got in under the wire from a distribution standpoint because i can't even imagine you know unless you're a hype brewery in some way or some fashion i can't even imagine how hard it would be to break into the distribution model right now um you know distributors are um much more selective and uh there's um i think as chris said very little room on the shelf not just competition from other craft now but now you got rtds and you know hard this and hard that and everything's you know uh forcing um all this competition and uh i just think it would be a very difficult model to pursue or you know at least to have that expectation that it's going to happen overnight now you could always have that hope maybe start out with self-distribution tap room kind of keep it more uh uh a little bit more conservative on the front end i would think so anyway it's it's been great it's an exciting part of our our business and since i'm focused on the brewery side of our business versus you know um uh, anyway, it's just a, a, I am excited that we're we're able to still grow at the pace that we are. We're probably about twenty five percent growth this year, but um, that's not that's kind of not what's happening in the industry. The craft beer industry is like down or you know level and um, has a lot of challenges. So I do feel very fortunate that we kind of got in when we did. Gotcha. So Tom, I know you got to jump a little early. What um what are your final words of wisdom for today and today's topic? Um, don't freak out about restaurants. Um, I still, I still, I'm just a big home brewer, you know, I mean, uh, I still go by Charlie Papazian, relax, don't worry, have a home brew. Home brewers know how to make good beer. Um, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take somebody a while and some capital to get to where Matt is. Uh, and where Matt is, is in, in 
you, you will become profitable when you get to that level. Huh. But what? not everybody, not you just said, <laughs> not everybody can start. Wait, let me check way. my uh, P&L. Hold on a second. <laughs> so, so what I, my words of wisdom is, is don't worry about it. You can start. I am a proponent of Frankenbrew. I'm a proponent of finding a little coffee house somewhere that you can convert into a tasting room, throw a, a panini sandwich maker in there and uh, have a staff of five people and you will be profitable because every, every beer you sell, you're going to be getting full retail for, and that's your starting point. Don't freak out about creating a, a multi-million dollar business. You can build a brewery for a hundred to $200,000 and be profitable. And, and uh, I'll bet you that much on it. Um, so I, my, my words of wisdom is, you know, start small uh, and have passion and uh, add some food in some, some simple way, just to start. You can add later, but start, but start that way. That's what I would say. Awesome. Um, well, I mean, we are kind of getting close to the end anyway. Let's, uh, let's keep with the words of wisdom. Uh, Chris. Well, you know, yeah. You need to find, you need to find the right place. Number one. Um, you need to have something that you can run on a smaller staff, like Tom was talk talking about. Um, it's just a matter of scale. I mean, if you if you really want to go towards what what uh, Matt and Destil are doing right now, then you need to uh, then you need some serious finances and you need some background in that kind of stuff. It's good. It's very capital intensive. But on the smaller end of the scale, which is really where the market is right now. Um, yeah, as long as you can control your costs and make it so that uh, you can run it on a fairly small staff, which means less headaches and less staffing uh, problems. Uh, but uh, that is, it's, that's something you can do. And you also need to be able to, you know, also what Tom was talking about in some of his stuff that he's been writing about, which is that, you know, differentiate yourself. Just, don't just have this just empty hole with no atmosphere or anything like that. There's so many different little components of that that don't necessarily take a ton of money, but take, take a little bit of thought process about making it so that it's not just some booming open space that becomes very uncomfortable to your patrons after a, a short period of time. And, uh, you know, make some good beer and then dispense it correctly. Uh, you know, use use decent equipment, spend a tiny bit more on money buying, you know, stainless steel stuff to pour your beer out of. Uh, you know, there's no excuse for using crappy, cheap beer line and uh, and chromed brass fixtures because you're just going to have to replace them in a couple of years. <laughs> and Matt, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, kind of where do you begin? But just to put it in a nutshell, um I'd say make sure you're getting into this increasingly challenging business for the right reasons. It can be a very rewarding business. I love what I do every day, even if you get a nasty letter from Candace uh, in the mail or something like that. But I even after that day, the next day, uh, still love going to, to work the next day. Um, so uh, I would also suggest having some business or entrepreneurial experience, management experience in some form or fashion, because you're going to need to be a management manager of just about everything that you can think of. 
um, or at least partner with those that that do. If your focus is more on the uh, brewery side, then you really need to team up with somebody that um, does have that experience. Uh, certainly a deep passion for what you're doing. Um, that's I know I have that even after all this time. Somehow I still do. Um, you need lots and lots of funding, and then you need backup funding behind that. So whatever your budget is for your project, and not just your project, you don't just build it and yay, it's open. Uh, I'd say you need uh, to double your project and your operating budget so that you can get through that. Um, you know, obviously a honeymoon period can be great, but you need to get through that the most challenging years, which is really that next, uh, you know, year or two years, three years after you open, you really need to have that backup funding or at least a source for it. Um, after your initial funding will run out because it will. And then, uh, you know, obviously a willingness to work hard, um, but you have to enjoy that. Uh, it's not just, you know, working hard and then not being happy, but uh, to enjoy working hard actually endlessly because your mind's going to be on it all the time. Um, and uh, like I said, make sure uh, first and foremost, since we're talking a lot about the group hub or the food side of things that you have either yourself or your partners have extensive restaurant operational experience uh, somewhere. Otherwise, you better do the food truck thing or uh, locate next to a restaurant that will serve your patrons or do something else creative where you're not running that restaurant because it will eat you alive. If you have no experience in it, it is the most challenging side of the business. It's also the most needed side of the business. Uh, and also, you know, it's to share your beer with the public in a tap room, you know, while serving them food, et cetera. That is an enjoyable thing. Like you said, uh, like Chris said, just to have a hole in the wall and not give them an experience. Uh, you know, that experience you can give guests through, you know, a restaurant, group pub, tap room with, you know, ideally food. Uh, that's very rewarding. And um, so while challenging, I wouldn't change that um, at all. Um, but if, you know, if the food thing is, you know, if you don't have a partner on the food side or whatever, the tap room model without that might be the, the best thing. But I will say, if focusing on production, you need to have a great product and uh, an intense uh, quality control program, ideally a lab manager, um, a packaging plan, uh, strong branding, and uh, hopefully a niche of some sort, if that even exists anymore. Means to sell at a retail a ta a tap room, hopefully a way to self-distribute in your market, um, because it's going to be hard to get distribution. Um, but then, you know, over time, hopefully you can establish some distribution. A lot of, you know, I get, we get approached by a lot of people that don't, you know, even for contract brewing that they don't even have a distributor interested in it. And they want, you know, us to just make a product for them. And they think it's going to, you know, I ask them what their volume projection is. And they're like, yeah, we think we're going to need five or 10,000 barrels. Like, oh yeah. Okay. Do you have a distributor? No, no. Uh -uh. Okay. Okay. Well, talk to me when you have a product and talk to me when you have product in the market. So anyway, uh, I don't know if any of that made sense, but I'm trying to sum up 15 years and, uh, uh, well, I took over my 15 seconds, but, you know, um, so. <laughs> I don't think anybody was holding you to 15 seconds. No, uh, and I've never known to uh, hold anything for 15 seconds. So but that's that's a you know, that's a, a nutshell of my experience, I guess. So well, I need to make one correction. Which that? is that I don't send nasty letters. You send emails, I, I bet. <laughs> no, I'm actually very polite and nice until like you ignore my first like letter email. I, I do the same thing. Them. I do the same thing. <laughs> I'll be nice as long as I'm getting a response and a nice uh, response at all or a nice response. Um, but then I can uh, 
the general counsel in me will kick in and I'll release the Kraken. So I don't like to release the Kraken. I'd rather have a beer with somebody. But the Kraken is there. It's under- tried to, You tried to get out of that business. <laughs> I tried to get out and suck you right back in like a vortex and uh, <laughs> even more so. I got out of the out of the lot of brew beer for a living. Now I don't brew beer anymore. I just uh, sit around uh, doing regulatory stuff in all the states that we're in and uh, distribution yeah. contracts, contract brewing contracts, but I love it. It's much better to have one client, even if it's a fool for a client or a really bad attorney, but it's it works much better than practicing law and going to court. So, yeah, I got in. I got into beer to avoid the law because my <laughs> most of the people in my family are lawyers. So I grew up okay. with them. Yeah. So I well, knew better. I didn't make I didn't figure that out soon enough. <laughs> it took uh yeah, I incurred all the law school debt and it took me uh, quite a while to um get that taken care of. So yeah, yeah definitely the the compliance is being in 40 states, that's a full-time job. But I, oh, I told I had one company that hired um us to set them up in every state and i'm like you really need to hire a person yeah to manage just do that. that and i yeah. and have me train them and then keep them. so uh so if you're looking uh i i'd like to hire for that position in our company so <laughs> excuse us while we conduct a little uh interview <laughs> and, uh, during the podcast but i need some help all right well chris and i are moderating our attorney conversations here right um one of the big things I want to pull out as I close um, from from Matt's closure here is that I think it's getting more and more difficult to just count on magic in the brewing business. I think you everybody needs to become better business people. And and to, to Matt's point about having somebody that's really good at the business side or really good as a restaurateur becomes more and more important when you have to tighten your belt as all the costs go up. So I think that's something that's really important to, to pull out there. So let's wrap up with a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us now and in the future for episode 009, Kitchens, and this conversation of Taproom versus Brew Pub versus Production Brewery of the Started Brewery podcast. We invite you to join us for our next episode, 010 or 10. We've had that conversation. Continuing yeah. forward with your business plan, this time delving into the questions around your design and build strategy. This will be released before the Roosters Crow in Nashville during CBC on Tuesday, May 9th. We have a final wrap-up word from our sponsor. Craft Beer knows firsthand that the best ingredient is love. Arrived Point of Sale combines industry expertise, essential taproom tools, and a whole lot of love to make running your brewery easier. Scale faster with Arrive's mobile all-in-one system that offers flight tools, digital card on file, and award-winning customer support. See profit building tools in action at arrive.com forward slash start a brewery. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash start a brewery. Finally, a lovable point of sale arrived. And while you're anticipating the release of our next episode, feel free to visit the Start a Brewery website at startabrewery.com, a free resource for those who are looking to open or grow their breweries. Be sure to look through the task lists offered for each stage of the process, plan, act, open, and grow, at the educational resources and at the offerings from our savvy contributors in our growing library. You can also sign up for an occasional electronic update with new Starter Brewery contributors, content, events, and more information on the contact page of the website. We also encourage you to explore the All About Beer website at allaboutbeer.com. Perhaps pop in to enjoy one of their excellent podcasts as well. In the meantime, this has been Laura Lodge and Candice Moon wishing you a terrific day and thanking you once again for joining us on our podcast journey to start a brewery.